so part of what's going on today is I think with this backbone of a much healthier labor market, a broad footprint of industries hiring led by goods producing, uh, goods producing jobs, uh, that, that that extraordinary demand for labor is taking us out of secular stagnation. This week on Wealth Track, leading economist Nancy Lazar on why she isn't concerned about rising inflation or interest rates and why middle America is still her favorite emerging market. She's next on Consuelo Mack Wealth Track. Funding provided by Clearbridge Investments, Morgan Le Fay Dreams Foundation, First Eagle Investment Management, Royce Investment Partners, Matthews Asia, and Strategus Asset Management. Hello and welcome to this edition of Wealth Track. I'm Consuelo Mack. Worried about interest rates? What about inflation? How about America's economic standing in the world? We'll be prepared to question all of the negative assumptions that you've been hearing and listen to some other data that shines a different light on the outlook. Our guest is a highly respected economist who is no Pollyanna. She is just a top economist who looks at data many others miss. Nancy Lazar is partner and chief economist of Cornerstone Macro, a leading independent macro research and policy firm she co-founded in 2013. Lazar has been an institutional investor ranked economist since 2001, placing in the top two the past nine years and named number one in 2015. She has also been on Barron's 100 Most Influential Women in U.S. Finance list in 2020 and 2021. Well, what are most other Wall Street economists missing that Lazar and her team are seeing? As her recent 2022 outlook put it, it all starts with CapEx. For non-economists, that means spending on long-lasting goods and services like plants, equipment, and software. As the report continues, the cyclical and secular stars are aligned for a renewed U.S. CapEx cycle this expansion, which will likely drive U.S. real GDP growth for the first time in over 40 years. And CapEx will drive this cycle, once and for all putting an end to the secular stagnation narrative. Lazar and her team are also challenging the assumptions that higher inflation is here to stay, that interest rates have to go higher, and that emerging markets will be the driver of global growth post-pandemic. No, no, and no. I began our conversation with the capital spending question. In a traditionally consumer-driven economy, why is capital spending going to play such an outsized role? We are very focused on U.S. capital spending, and I want to emphasize U.S. domestic capital spending. I'm not talking about companies investing in China or in Mexico. I'm talking about companies investing here uh, in the United States. And it's from building uh, new factories, it's building new warehouses, um, it's, it's reinvesting in the production facilities you already have, uh, it can be green investment. Uh, but capital spending in general has a unique characteristic. It obviously creates goods producing jobs, manufacturing jobs, and construction jobs. Those are very, very special jobs in that from there you actually have job multipliers. Other jobs are created as a result of that investment and those jobs uh, in other goods producing sectors, suppliers to the manufacturers, but also the service, uh, the service sector, the job multiplier in my lingo, um, is very large in the goods producing sector. Uh, you get more than one job for every job that you, cre you create. And we lost that when we shifted production over to China. Capital spending deteriorated. Uh, the breadth of industries hiring in this country deteriorated. Uh, the labor force participation, the number of people in the labor force participation deteriorated. And that created secular stagnation in our view. 
Tell us about the dynamics that are occurring and really what's changed uh, as far as the capital spending having such a big impact in the U.S. So it started actually a decade ago, um, and, and has, so it's, it's been unfolding. Uh, back in 2010, China decided it had enough investment. Uh, capital spending to China's GDP was getting extremely uh, elevated, approaching almost 40% of GDP. That's too big. And China realized they needed to shift to the consumer. So our capital spending started to slow down uh, in shifting over to China. In addition, China just wasn't, uh, even back in 2010, uh, a very attractive place to do investment. Costs had gone up. There was concerns about intellectual property. Uh, the supply chain, even 10 years ago, was uh, not as efficient as it used to be. So you started to see more and more domestic capex here in the United States. Um, and that began uh, the growth in goods producing jobs. Um, then uh, you had the 2017-18 corporate tax rate cut, and that reinforced, quite frankly, domestic investment. And you had another major leg up in U.S. Uh, US capital spending. Fast forward to where we are today, you've really had two events. One, you've had the COVID-related supply chain disruptions. We make it over there and need to ship it over here. It's taking an egregiously long period of time to do that and then to unload all of those boats. And therefore, uh, the supply chain is incredibly disrupted. Prices go up as a result of that. Uh, companies can't be as efficient as they otherwise would be. Um, in addition, China is even a more egregious place to do business today than it was 10 years ago. And that certainly has come uh, through uh, very, very clear. They're clamping down regulations dramatically. They're basically anti many, many Western companies. And so there has increasingly been uh, a growing view that the United States consumer is indeed the biggest consumer in the world. And if you sell it here, you increasingly make it here and you avoid all of those disruptions. So it's not as if it was just due to COVID. Um, it's actually been uh, unfolding now for, uh, for, 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 for a decade. And COVID for sure right. uh, has uh, pulled it forward, accelerated it. Uh, but that's great um, because that means you create more jobs uh, faster than we otherwise would have. Nancy, what kinds of companies are, are, are investing uh, in, in manufacturing and, and also in themselves? It's a wide variety, which is so key. You don't want it to be just one industry uh, from industrial, classic industrial companies like an, like an Eaton. Uh, certainly the auto industry, foreign auto companies are continuing to expand in this country. Oh my goodness, technology companies, semiconductor companies are building new plant in the United States. Aerospace aerospace companies, chemical companies. Um, we, we actually count the number of companies that are onshoring into the United I States. I know you do that are onshoring, yeah. right. So tell us kind of where we are in as far as the number of companies that have either announced plans to bring factories here um, or, you know, that have actually done it in the last couple of years? So from an onshoring perspective, I think we're up to about 250 uh, here in 2021. Uh, we're not yet at the end of the year. Last year, we, we were 250 in total. Uh, so we're going to actually exceed that. We're still below the peaks we were prior to the COVID crisis. So we think there's more runway, uh, runway for that. Uh, we, we in no way think that this uh, cycle is anywhere anywhere over. Capital spending cycles classically take uh, roughly 30 years. Um, and so we think we're at the early stage of this reinvestment into the, the country. It's not just onshoring. It's just not companies moving back to the United States. 
Um, it's mm -hmm. actually domestic companies expanding production in the United States. And that actually may be even a bigger story, uh, Just, but it further reinforces our conclusion, which is goods producing jobs are back, which is just fantastic uh, for a healthier labor market. I can't get out of my head the fact that it's been drilled into all of us that this is a consumer-driven economy, that the consumer is 70% of the economy, and that manufacturing has been shrinking and is, has a much smaller impact. So the reason manufacturing is so important uh, relative to consumer spending is, quite frankly, without uh, capital spending without manufacturing in this country, you have a weaker job market. If you have a weaker job market, you have weaker wages. And if you have weaker wages, you have weaker in income. Therefore, the consumer doesn't have the wherewithal to spend. So uh, actually, companies are the backbone of consumer spending. Manufacturing is the backbone of consumer spending, even though it's only about 13% of GDP versus, as you said, consumer spending is almost 70% of GDP. If you don't have the wherewithal for jobs, which is what manufacturing and capital spending create, the consumer is going to be very fragile. Let me ask you about um, the competitiveness of, of the U.S. And certainly one of the things that's happening now that is unusual is that workers' wages are going up after, you know, I don't know, years uh, of declining or remaining flat. But what about the, the competitive aspect of, of higher wages in this country? First, I think there is a secular shift up in wages. Put differently, we were in secular stagnation. Wages were 2%. You were in a deteriorating trend from 2000 uh, through 2010. You fell to 2 and then you stayed there for five or six years. We've never broken below 3%. Uh, prior to 2000, 2010, and then stayed there for five years. That's the stagnation that, that I'm talking about. So part of what's right. going on today is I think with this backbone of a much healthier labor market, a broad footprint of industries hiring led by goods producing, uh, goods producing jobs, uh, that, that that extraordinary demand for labor is taking us out of secular stagnation. So first, what's happening is that. Second, Cyclically, you have forces, I've obviously related still to COVID, uh, where potentially because of the shutdowns, uh, people are uh, concerned about going back to work because of COVID, there is incrementally less labor supply, um, and that short-term cyclically uh, is creating this pop, uh, pop in wages, where we think as we go forward, uh, those wage gains will, will moderate. I don't think we're going back to 2% again with this current backdrop. Uh -huh. We might moderate something closer back down to 3 to 3.5%, 3 say, over the next 12 to 18 months. Um, but what we're seeing right now is, is, is cyclical. But also, wages are only one part of the cost equation. Those other things we, we talked about earlier, transportation, uh, shipping from China to the United States, a regulatory backdrop uh, in other countries. Maybe companies move to Vietnam or even Mexico. Ease of doing business in those countries is not particularly easy. Uh, um, mm -hmm. And so increasingly, again, if you given technology and innovation and productivity, uh, cost of doing business, cost of manufacturing in the United States uh, is increasingly becoming competitive, not for some products, but for many products. One of the criticisms of many publicly traded companies is that you know they've used their their gains not to reinvest in themselves or in you know plants and equipment and everything you're talking about but uh, that in, in fact that they all they've been doing is buying back stocks 
you're saying, in fact, uh, that it is not the case. To be sure, some companies do buy back their stocks, but the, the magnitude of buybacks relative to capbacks is, is, is small. If you look at the right data, uh, which is GDP right. capital spending data, not S&P companies capital spending data, capital spending is four times bigger than stock buybacks. There's a small universe of companies, big companies, that are buying back stocks. It is the wrong conclusion that companies aren't reinvesting in their business. They are. Capital spending, I'll, I'll say it again, is four times bigger than the amount of stock buybacks. Nancy, it's really interesting. You've been keeping tabs on where companies are reinvesting in the United States. And they are states like Georgia and Michigan and Texas, Ohio, Kentucky, Oklahoma, North Carolina. So, and it's been happening since 2010. So are these states where we're going to see the most job growth? Uh, and do you think it's sustainable? It is the middle part of this country. Um, and you see it in the unemployment rates. The unemployment rates in the middle part of the country are clearly below 5%, 4.5%, whereas unemployment rates on the coast, in the mid, uh, on the east and west coasts, on average are about 6.5%, with kind of New York and California anchoring them at over 7%. Uh, percent. And that's because that's where the goods producing jobs used to be and still are. And so companies are going right. back to the middle part of, of, of uh, the United States. Uh, you see it, uh, you see it in the data. Um, and I'll, I'll say it again, I've, I've said it for many years, Middle America is my favorite emerging market. It's interesting, you also have highlighted at Cornerstone Macro the difference in investment performance um, um, among companies. Can you explain what your research has shown you? So within the uh, S&P, there's something called S&P cap goods sector. We pull it apart. We pull it apart and scan for companies that have high U.S. sales, say roughly 90% of their sales in the United States. And then we look at those companies relative to companies that, say, have low U.S. sales, the bulk of their sales outside of the United States. And for a decade, uh, those companies have been outperforming those companies with uh, low U.S. sales. And they've actually also uh, not as not as strongly, but they've also been outperforming uh, the overall the overall market. Wow! I mean, th th again, th this is one of those stories that uh, is unknown, you know, for most of us, and certainly Wall Street has not been focusing on this story either. You know, why not? I mean, why? It sounds like a a, a great theme. Well, in in part, again, when you have a major change from what was, right? Uh, it's it's. Wall Street puts a tremendous amount of investment uh, in these global themes, in the emerging market theme. Uh, they have uh, a lot of their own investment uh, in those countries, and it's very difficult to change uh, quickly. I, I started in the business in the early 1980s, and we shifted from high inflation to low inflation. That was a very controversial call at the time. It wasn't at all clear that was going to happen. I was very lucky. I happened to work with a group of people who caught the change very quickly uh, and was mm -hmm. a smaller firm. Um, and so I think part of it is, is just legacy issues uh, for a lot of Wall Street companies. The emerging market theme is 30 years old. It's long in the tooth. Yes, it is. Uh, and investment cycles, as I mentioned, are classically 30 years. It, it's kind of a classic economic time for this investment theme to be changing. But Wall Street has too much investment. Uh, and I'm also told by many people, because I asked this question myself, consultants apparently still are pounding the table on the importance of diversifying to the emerging market. 
Yes, they absolutely. So. You know, speaking of cycles, and if, if they're about you know 30 years long, interest rates have been declining for 40 yeah. years. There are many people who are saying uh, that that cycle is over and that the, that a new cycle is beginning. But are you one of those? Uh, you're not, right? Well, I think we're bottoming. I think that's definitely fair. Right? Uh, there is definitely not a, a view, which we have, that secular stagnation is over, potential GDP is grinding higher. Those trends started the last expansion. You see it in potential GDP data that the Congressional Budget Office publishes. You see it in the wage data uh, that uh, we're accelerating as you went into the back half of the last expansion. The Fed is not yet convinced of that. Uh, and right. therefore, they are going to continue to help hold interest rates down lower longer. Say, over the next five to 10 years, are we going to see a gradual shift up in rates if indeed this pans out? And it's a big if. Um, and, and the answer is probably. Uh, but similar to the 1980s, it was very difficult for bond yields to come down quickly, even though we moved into a period of sustained lower inflation. It's probably going to be symmetrical on the upside. And don't forget, the 70s were the anomaly. The early 80s, if you look historically, that's a real blip in inflation and interest rates. Uh, classically, uh, if you go back 150 years, that was a very unusual time. And so it doesn't mean we go back to you know, double-digit interest rates, but are we out of secular stagnation and do we need zero interest rates or do bond yields stay below 2% forever? And I think the answer is no, but I think it happens very gradually. Let's forget five to 10 years, but your forecast for 2022 is 4% real GDP growth. That's, that's if you exclude inflation, and which is a good, really good number, and also 1% CPI, yeah. the Consumer Price Index. So ex explain those two figures. So uh, first, the 4% GDP for 2022 is an incremental slowdown from this year. You'll be something around 5 to All five, right, five to 6%. Right. But you're absolutely right. 4% is basically double the growth rate we had the last expansion. And that's also probably still a recovery growth rate um, driven by capital spending. We have capital spending increasing about 8% in 2022, consumer spending something around 3 to 4%. Uh, so it's an incremental slowdown, but absolutely uh, still stronger than what we had uh, on average the last expansion. You know, 2023 probably slows a little bit more, but we don't think we're going back to 2% on a sustained basis. We think 3% uh, is kind of that new non-stagnation uh, kind of growth trajectory by this capital spending cycle. Then how can, how can inflation slow if the economy is going to be right. uh, that, that robust? Uh, well, one, uh, we think the surge we've seen in inflation was related to a couple of things that have been widely talked about. We, we tend to agree with them. Uh, you had the, uh, a, a demand supply imbalance um, for a couple of reasons. One, we were locked down. And so consumers demanded a lot of goods, a lot of stuff that we may have bought over three to five years instead of one year. So the demand for goods went up very, very sharply. At the same time, we had uh, problems with the supply chain. You just didn't have all that stuff because some of the factories were closed down. So that caused a spike in goods inflation in particular. Uh, we think that's going to unwind because we're now done buying goods. Uh, goods inflation is uh, already starting to slow significantly from what it was this past spring. 1% GDP in 
consumer price index, though. That's a low number, Nancy. Well, but the five <laughs> is a high number. And so right now it's five. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and we think we go to one, you know, on average, that's three. Uh, over two uh, over two years, that's probably the right. better way to look at it. Um, just as the five is not sustainable, the one is not sustainable. Uh, but but people are too caught up on where we are, and this fear uh, that the Fed has been too easy too long, we think also uh, fades. And then three, this fear that bond yields have to go up dramatically will also will also fade. So uh, you need to look a little bit what's going on uh, around the world. And once we do that, uh, we think next year uh, you see less up, significantly less upward pressure on interest rates as you move into the second half of the year. Maybe in the first half rates can grind a little higher. But in the back half, we think rates, if anything, are flat to down. What's your view of China's role uh, in the world and its importance as the world's second largest economy? So we're not at all convinced that China exceeds U.S. economic activity ever. Um, it's a little bit like the Japan story of the 1980s. That was always the quote-unquote fear. Um, I, I am enough of a capitalist to believe Japan is, 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 a, is, is a fantastic country, uh, but it has huge socialistic tendencies, uh, which holds, holds back business investment and a lot of dynamism the country should have. Um, China is clearly a communist socialistic country. They are excel accelerating that path. They have what they call common mm -hmm. prosperity for the common man. They are literally redistributing income from billionaires. They're allowing house prices to go down. They want house prices to go down so people, lower income people, can actually afford to buy houses. They're well aware that's going to squeeze people who own these homes. Uh, consumer real purchasing power, that's fine. They want to redistribute income. Uh, freedom of speech is, is, is deteriorating dramatically. Um, they're right. uh, uh, commingling companies. The government is nationalizing companies. Uh, they have a major housing debt crisis right now, of which if you had in any other country, you'd be forecasting a severe recession. I'm not calling for that in China. They seem to be managing it, but it is going to crimp economic activity. So China, uh, if anything, has gone inward again, which they do periodically, historically. Um, and no, uh, China it may be more of a geopolitical issue uh, than they are going to be a major driver of global growth. We think that era is over. As far as the, the capital spending cycle and the strength of it in this country, what could derail it? I, I'm trying not to get too glassy-eyed bullish on the theme, so I need to be a little cautious. If Washington put in place right. higher taxes, higher, extremely higher regulations, uh, it would certainly slow things down, uh, to, be, to be sure. Let's assume that, that your theme will continue to pan out as it has. Uh, what's your advice to investors? We've had, had a view uh, for, for a decade that the United States was indeed going to be the best market in the world, and, and on average, it has been. Uh, it has there's been. a view mm -hmm. that it's because we have all the great technology companies. I think it's broader than that. It's not just technology companies. It's the, these other new drivers of growth. We have more classic capital good companies that have also been contributing to that. So staying focused, uh, to be sure, on U.S. Uh, uh, domiciled companies, companies that have a bigger share of business in the United States. Um, within that, it can it can range from kind of what they call classic capital goods companies or your old economy 
uh, companies to new economy companies, technology companies that are helping uh, this uh, kind of industrial revolution, uh, technology revolution in this country. One investment for a long-term diversified portfolio, Nancy, what would you have all of us own some of? Kathy Wood's ARC Innovation Fund, um, for me, is, is very, very, very consistent with our story that innovation, investment uh, in both technology, uh, old economy factories uh, in this country, uh, of which technology is a huge driver. What goes into all these buildings mm -hmm. today? Technology. What goes into warehouses today? Robotics. Uh, that I think her fund is, um, is, is perhaps uh, most directly tied to uh, our themes. Nancy Lazar, thank you so much for joining us. The innovation theme that is happening here in the U.S. is very exciting to hear as both uh, an investor and as an American investor. So thank you, Nancy. Thank you very much, Consuelo. Great to see you. At the close of every wealth track, we try to give you one suggestion to help you build and protect your wealth over the long term. This week's action point is listen to people who aren't afraid to challenge conventional thinking. Lazar is exploding several myths with her research. Among them, that companies have been spending much more on stock buybacks than on investment in their business. As we discussed, yes, some do, but it turns out that capital spending is four times the size of buybacks, and companies that invest in themselves outperform, and companies that don't underperform. Another myth, China is destined to become the world's economic powerhouse. Lazar makes a strong case for why China's growth and influence is slowing, and why the U.S. manufacturing renaissance is likely to continue for years to come. Challenging groupthink can lead to better performance results. Next week, leading growth fund manager Margaret Vetrano explains her unconventional decision to dramatically cut back some of her winning FANG holdings. In this week's Extra Feature, Lazar gives us her perspective on challenging conventional economic wisdom. To keep up with WealthTrack guests, we invite you to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and our YouTube channel. Thank you for spending time with us. Have a superb weekend and make the week ahead a healthy, profitable, and productive one.